Andrew here, just cutting in quickly before your podcast episode today to remind you that Radiopedia 2024, our virtual conference, is coming up this July 22 to 26. There's going to be lectures, case workshops, panel discussions, round-the-clock live streams, enhanced on-demand playback, including scrollable case images. It's free for Radiopedia all-access pass holders and in 125 low- and middle-income countries. There's tiered pricing for everyone else to promote uh, equitable global access, and there are even AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Uh, Anyway, you should definitely register, and I'll see you all online this July. Welcome once again into the Radiopedia Reading Room, a podcast unconcerned with books or the poetries, the tea leaves or the palmistries. It's a radiology podcast. My name is Andrew Dixon and joining me, now I could make a veiled reference to today's episode topic, but he's just going to hijack the moment and talk about something else anyway. It's my co-host, Frank Gaylard. Please, Dixon. It's not. You're not even trying anymore. How am I going to hijack the episode? When do I ever hijack an episode? (laughs) (laughs) Every week. It's the start of December, so I can say whatever I like about this being a chest imaging discussion featuring Miranda Shimonovich, Jonathan Chung, but you're going to march straight into talking about your beloved Radiopedia December supporter (laughs) drive. I just know it. (laughs) Yes. Yes, it's true. You know me well. But it is that time of the year, you know. And for our dear listeners who may not know what our December drive is, that is the one time a year where we nag and bother and remind people that if they find Radiopedia valuable, they should consider becoming paid supporters. And uh, that means a, a lot for us because not only do you get lots of extra features as a supporter? But most importantly, at least for most people anyway, that means you don't see any of those annoying ads. Yes, ads are no good. That reminds me, actually, it's summer holidays. My family have been watching a few TV shows together and my daughter's name is Bella. And there's this one ad that keeps coming up. And it's for a drink called Coco Bella. <laughs> anyway, I've tried to convince Bella that, that this is a new like personalised ad technology And even though we're both watching the same screen at the same time, she hears and sees Coco Bella, whereas I hear and see Coco Andrew. (laughs) (laughs) She doesn't believe me in the slightest, but that doesn't stop me every time the ad comes on. (laughs) We should get some Coco Andrew. (laughs) (laughs) There are some words that you can hear in two ways. Have you seen those videos? Like on YouTube, there's a bunch where if you show a particular word on the screen at the same time as someone says the word, you Mm. will literally hear that word and then the same audio with a different word and you hear a different word. It's not like advertising companies need another way to be uh, more invasive, so don't give them any good ideas. But anyway, (laughs) going back to December Drive, it is important because the reality is that as much as we don't like ads, ads are the primary way that we keep the site alive and free. And if it wasn't for ads, we would 100% not exist and be shut down or be behind a paywall. Did I ever tell you about the first year we ran the December drive? I don't think you've told it on the podcast, but I do. I think I know the story. Go for it. Uh, So this was maybe 10, 12 years ago, very early on. and, And Wikipedia does a supporter drive every year. And a friend of mine who also worked on Radiopedia was like, oh, uh, we know what numbers 
of conversion Wikipedia has per thousand viewers. And we know Mm -hmm. how many dollars they get during their drive. And we know how many viewers we have. And I've done the maths. And, you know, if we were as successful at Wikipedia in getting people to become paid supporters, we could earn $50,000. And it was like, that's amazing. We have to do it. So we hired this American advertising consultant to come up with a campaign. Mm-hmm. And we paid him like $7,000 and he did a terrible job. And we were about to launch. And then this friend of mine came up and a bit sheepishly and said, uh, uh, you, you, you know how it was $50,000? I checked my maths and, oh, no. and the decimal place was in the wrong place. Actually, if we're as successful as Wikipedia, we can only hope to get about $5,000. <laughs> and then we ran it and we were not as successful as Wikipedia. We got about... $2,000. So the oh, net no. loss was $5,000. I mean, we didn't do it for a f- number of years after that. Now, however, uh, I don't think we're up to that magical number anyway, but it is certainly a time that people do become supporters and it means we're less reliant on advertising and uh, it's just generally a great thing. Plus you get lots of extra perks. Yep. Awesome. Uh, well, let's get back into introducing today's main segment. So this is a chat that Miranda and Jonathan recorded earlier in the year for Radiopedia 2023, discussing each other's lectures. So Jonathan had just given a lecture on connective tissue disease related interstitial lung disease and Miranda a lecture on focal lung opacities, tumor versus infection. And both of these lectures can be found on Radiopedia in our chest imaging lecture collection. But before we listen in, Gaylard, two things. Mm-hmm. One, there are a lot of uh, acronyms slash initialisms that feature in this discussion. So I'm going to provide a bit of a, a quick glossary to help <laughs> people out. And two, I've written a spot the fake to test you out. Excellent. Good. Uh, everyone loves a TLA. A TLA. I know TLC, tender loving us. A three-letter acronym. Three-letter acronym. Okay. <laughs> I think tender loving us is quite good. <laughs> uh, so firstly, yeah, CTD means connective tissue disease. ILD means interstitial lung disease. UIP means usual interstitial pneumonia. And IPF means idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. Happy with that, Frank? Y-I-A. Yes, I am. (laughs) Okay. All right. F you. Now, Miranda (laughs) and Jonathan are going to mention three CT chest signs in this discussion that uh, can help you to distinguish UIP that is due to connective tissue disease from UIP that is due to idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. So you see UIP pattern on your CT chest, but in addition, there are some extra features that can help steer you towards knowing that there may be an underlying connective tissue disease. So I'm going to name the four signs, and your job, Gaylord, is to tell me which one is the fake. All right, let's do it. Okay, so is it true that, number one, The straight edge sign suggests connective tissue disease-related ILD, the straight edge being a distinct boundary between fibrotic areas inferiorly and the unaffected lung parenchyma superiorly. Is it true that, number two, the anterior upper lobe sign suggests connective tissue disease-related ILD? This is fibrosis primarily in the anterior segment of both upper lobes, sparing the rest of the upper lobes, but with concurrent involvement of the lung bases. Three, is it true that the exuberant honeycombing sign suggests CTD-related LILD? (laughs) This is the presence of extensive honeycomb-like cyst formation within the lungs comprising more than 70% 
of the fibrotic <sighs> lung portions. You love HRCT. And <laughs> the final one, is it true that, number four, the pulmonary hot dog sign suggests oh, connective talking. tissue disease-related <laughs> ILD. This is the presence of ground glass opacity longitudinally surrounding a medium-sized airway with UIP pattern seen elsewhere. Oh. The ground glass margin is curved, resembling a bun, and the airway <laughs> is the sausage. <laughs> All right, so one and two sound right. They're talking about inferior lung base something. That that sounds like pulmonary fibrosis. And I know this is meant to be connective tissue, but I can't overthink this. And I desperately want four to be true. So I'm going to think <laughs> that you've you've been dodgy with the 70%. You've probably okay. changed it from 30% or something. So I'm going to go with three being false. Okay, so you don't like exuberant honeycombing sign. No. Well, we're going to find out. After we listen oh. to the discussion, keep right. you on tender hooks. Uh, so, Miranda is a chess radiologist at the Alfred Hospital here in Melbourne, and Jonathan, a chess radiologist at the University of Chicago Medicine. They'll talk about connective tissue disease related ILD. They'll talk about pulmonary fibrosis in general, uh, HP, which is hypersensitive, hypersensitivity <laughs> pneumonitis. And they'll even talk about litigation and radiology reporting as well. So, lots coming your way. And then, Frank. And I will be back for another chat in the outro. Now joining me all the way from Chicago is Jonathan Chung. Jonathan, it's great to have you here again for another panel session with Radiopedia. Now I have been to Chicago. I particularly remember this amazing Chicago style hot dog that I had with some kind of heavenly sausage and onions and pickled cucumber and mustard and just about everything. I've been trying to recreate that ever since. Come back to Chicago for sure. Are you a hot dog person? I am definitely a hot dog person. I like all types of food. Um, you know, Chicago like is a very meat and potatoes kind of town. And so everything has has meat in it. You know, I think uh, some people have the model. I, I certainly have the model where, where uh, if there's no meat in there, it's just a snack, right? It's not a meal, right? You, you got to have some sort of <laughs> staple of, of meat, right? And so, um, yeah, the Chicago style hot dog, I love it, right? I love the fact that it's so unique, right? You got, uh, you got the onions in there, you got tomato, you got the pickles. It's just like, it's so much. It's almost overwhelming. And one questions whether, well, why do you need all this stuff in a hot dog? It's, it's a hot dog with just mustard is fine. It tastes, tastes great. But when you put all this other stuff in it, oh, it just, it pops. It's a real meal. Um, I remember growing up as a kid, I would have, I, I'd ride my bike with my friends down to like the, the local, like grease pit area and they would have video games. So we play video games and then we would all order two hot dogs with an order of French fries cost two ninety nine. Can you believe it? Two dollars and ninety nine cents back then. And so, you know, we, we would eat that and afterwards we go home just like and just like kind of plop down on the couch uh, and relax. Right. And so uh, those are summers. I miss those kind of summers. Unfortunately, I don't get to do that anymore. You know, go play video games and eat hot dogs and, and French fries. Life's too busy, but I reckon I could still have one of those once a week and be very, very happy. <laughs> oh, yes, for sure. For sure. Now, thank you for your amazing lecture for this session. Um, you're talking about thoracic manifestations of connective tissue disease, and um, it's a really go-to topic in chest imaging and really answers that question for the audience. And um, what I love is that you're working in one of my favorite papers on the uh, features of UIP pattern fibrosis that may suggest a connective tissue disease etiology. So you're talking about the anterior upper lobe sign, the straight edge sign, the exuberant honeycombing sign. 
I have to say in my day-to-day practice, what I find myself showing the most in the MDMs is that straight edge sign because it is just so striking. And when it's there, it's just oh, yeah. so beautiful, like a ruler edge across mm-hmm. the bottom of the lung with the abnormal parenchyma underneath and normal on top. And I wonder what, what do you find the most useful in your day-to-day practice? Yeah, you know, in my day-to-day practice, out of those three signs, the two signs that are most useful to me are that straight edge sign and then the exuberant honeycombing sign. The anterior upper lobe sign, um, you oftentimes those findings are pretty subtle. You really got to squint and look hard. And then even if you see it, the signal is not as strong as is in the exuberant honeycombing sign and the straight edge sign. If I see the exuberant honeycombing sign, I'm like really sure this patient yeah. has connected tissue disease. And if the patient yeah. has a history of IPF instead, I really strongly suggest that we d- dig deeper and try to look for a cause for the patient's uh, pulmonary fibrosis. I'm trying to tell them that, you know, maybe we missed a connective tissue disease, whether it's rheumatoid arthritis or mixed connective tissue disease, because to me, it's so suggestive. And same thing with straight edge sign. That's straight edge sign. And usually they come together, not usually, very often they come together where you see that straight edge sign plus that exuberant honeycombing sign. And then I think really it's a slam dunk. It's, it's interesting with this hunt for connective tissue disease, isn't it? Because I find that our clinicians tend to have an approach of uh, repeating the serology yearly unless everybody's really comfortable. There's a high probability diagnosis. There's nothing that's throwing up any signal for something else. Yes. Because we know that the serology can be negative, but then can convert to positive and, and really seal the deal that we need to be chasing down something else and maybe thinking about immune suppression. So one of the really interesting things about working with interstitial lung disease is the fact that you're working in this space of a working diagnosis of greater or lesser confidence and the entire team needs to be alert and open to changing that as the picture of the patient, the radiology, the physiology evolves. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I I used to complain to my pulmonologist, especially during these MDDs, because very often they would do repeat discussions on a patient. And I'd say, I remember this patient from two years ago. <laughs> Don't we have a diagnosis? And then they always remind me, they say, you know, the diagnosis can change over time, right? These are things, you know, we make a presumptive diagnosis a lot of times, especially HP, right? We make a presumptive diagnosis of HP a lot of times. Um, and sometimes you make a, even a presumptive diagnosis of IPF. But in those two settings, if you make those diagnoses, you always have to have a little bit of flexibility. And certainly some of those IPFs, I think, eventually end up being connective tissue diseases. Um, if something is connective tissue disease, those very seldom does it turn to something else, right? Like there, yeah. I think we yeah. can have a little bit more confidence. Yeah. We had a case in a MDM recently that reminded me of you because it was brought to the meeting as a, it's a middle-aged male query UIP pattern query IPF. Um, and we've, when we've got the images, this is, this is not just exuberant honeycombing. This is essentially exclusive honeycombing and 95%. So I know that you talk about that benchmark of at least 70% volume of affected lung being honeycombing. I swear this was in excess of 95%, you know, a couple of stray reticulations and then the rest was really just honeycombing. It was so striking. And then once we're provided with this five-year-old CT, then we've got really extensive, obvious subplural sparing. Mm. Um, so we bring that into the discussion and then the patient throws up a positive rheumatoid factor. So tell me, how does this kind of um, analysis radiologically um, contribute to patient management? I think that in that setting, it's so suggestive of connective tissue disease that if it if they can't find a reason for the patient to have that pulmonary fibrosis, a, a, a cause, a specific type of connective tissue disease, you have to say, well, you know, we I don't think we should even make 
a presumptive diagnosis of IPF, I think maybe we should dig a little deeper or maybe consider calling it maybe even unclassifiable. Maybe that's a little bit of a stretch to maybe call that unclassifiable. But I think that if you have data, if they have data that says, well, it's idiopathic because we can't find a cause, but then we as radiologists have very strong data that suggests this kind of tissue disease, it would be, I think, incorrect to call that IPF. Um, I do know that at least some of my clinicians, the clinicians that I work with, they would rather us just come down hard and call it something like IPF because from a, a, uh, a standpoint of insurance companies paying for certain antifibrotic medications, it makes it easier if we just come down definitively and say, this is IPF, the patient needs you know, this antifibrotic medication. Uh, but it's in my mind, it's not best practice to be wrong, no, like give someone the wrong diagnosis when in your gut you know it's not the right way to go, right? Because it certainly has... Uh, prognostic ramifications. And down the line, who knows, it may actually have uh, other ramifications, treatment ramifications as well. So I think it's better if you're not sure or if you have discordant data to kind of run in the middle, right? And just try to reevaluate maybe in six months, maybe it doesn't have to be a year, maybe you can a six month evaluation. But yeah, those are, those are always iffy. And then the other pearl that I love that you brought up is the fact that the earliest CT scan oftentimes is going to be the most diagnostic CT scan. I, I, I talk to my residents and my fellows all the time about this, where very often they're trying to get the CT that just came through and say, all right, well, this is the pattern of pulmonary fibrosis, yada, 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 you know, distribution, all these things. And I tell them, you know, that's great. That's wonderful. We should definitely do that. But in terms of the diagnosis, really the cause of the pulmonary fibrosis, the most valuable CT scan is the one that was five years ago, is the early CT scan. Because you know, as you know, like a after a while, all these pulmonary fibrotic patterns, as they get more and more severe, they start mo moving toward a UIP pattern. And so it's like, um, I've used this analogy before, I'm going to use it again. It's, it's, it's like a, a car, right? Like if you, if you have a brand new car, it's easy to tell if it's a Toyota versus a Mercedes versus something else. But once that car is kind of broken down and sort of loses like its tailpipe and it's got rust damage, stuff like that, you take it, you, you take it over to like the, the trash heap and it gets all like compacted. You don't know if someone's Mercedes or Toyota or whatever, right? It's just, that's like, so to me, that's like end stage pulmonary fibrosis, right? So yeah, so if you have end stage pulmonary fibrosis, everything's like crunched and everything is sort of like broken. It's hard to figure out what's going on. So you want to go to the early CT scan possible to give you the most data. Yeah, I love that analogy. Um, that's absolutely perfect and, and very, very true. Completely unrecognizable once it's once it's at the end of the line like that. Oh, yeah. We're very fortunate in our MDM discussions to have an immunologist attending our meetings. So we get really valuable insights from these complex serology panels with all of these, you know, tremendously intricate autoantibody assessments. Are you able to have uh, immunology input? Um, how, how do you sort of, how's, what does your team look like? Yeah, so we we are also fortunate. We have a rheumatologist. She's on maternity leave right now. Has the cutest baby. You would you wouldn't believe. It. So usually, <laughs> you know, you know when you have newborn babies and people are like, oh, it's so so cute, right? But newborn babies are seldom that cute, right? Because it takes a while for their face to kind of like reform into the way it's supposed to look. This baby yeah. is like the cutest baby I've ever seen. I'm not kidding, right? I don't know what it is. Great genetics, but beautiful baby. Anyhow. Um, when, when she's back from maternity leave, um, she will come to every MDD we have and really dig deep into these serologies. And she just knows like every single like detail. I, I used to think our pulmonologists in interstitial lung disease like knew the serologies inside and out. And they do. They're really good, our pulmonologists who like interstitial lung disease. But she takes it to a whole other level. And so once she started coming to our, our MDDs about, what was it, like three years ago or maybe even four years ago, 
it was a totally different ball game. And I think that she's probably prevented us from misdiagnosing a ton of patients who have CTD as IPF. So really, I agree with you, completely valuable. Um, if I know that's not feasible at a lot of different centers to have a rheumatologist or immunologist join these MDDs. But if you can convince them to come, especially someone who's passionate about interstitial lung disease, oh, what what a, a joyous occasion. Very helpful. Yeah, a great team is is such a wonderful thing really makes a difference to have that mix of skill sets in the room to pick through these and and just going back again to that thought that interstitial lung disease is really a organic evolution in differential diagnosis and we have unclassifiable unclassifiable patients that we're seeing again and and um, the picture is changing and all of that input is just absolutely fantastic yeah and, and not just for the clinical side right for the for the research side of things as well it's really valuable mm. because a lot of times depending on where you're coming from, the the research questions, obvious research questions will just pop into your head that other people haven't thought about at all, just based on your clinical experience. So yeah, it's it's great. It's two-pronged, right? In terms of it helps with the clinical side of things, but also hurts, helps with the, the research side of things and discovery. Yeah, you're talking about research ideas. Um, in your lecture, you mentioned a little bit about the story of where the um, connective tissue disease signs in UIP paper came from and the way it germinated over time. And I'd really love to hear more about that story. And what was your big aha moment in putting this together? So I had to touch base with my colleague again, a colleague again, uh, Christian Cox. He goes by Chris. Uh, so he and I worked together at National Jewish. We were in the same reading room. And National Jewish is an interesting place. Like they all like they all they do is chronic lung disease, which is like pretty, pretty amazing for someone like me who likes interstitial lung disease. And so they separate out their reading rooms to decrease the amount of like sound pollution when you dictate when you and for voice recognition. So there are three reading rooms. Each of them I think have two or three workstations in them. And so Chris and I were in one work workstation uh, one uh, reading room together. And the nice thing about that was that we were both about the same age. We both loved interstitial lung disease and we both liked to like think about things. You know, we like to nerd out on, on stuff. <laughs> the conversation in that room, I still miss. I miss those years, right? And so he, we were sitting, we would sit back to back. And every once in a while, when, when there was a lull, we would start talking about things or things that we noticed. And so when one of the things that we talked about was uh, CT signs, right? CT signs that had not been published that people talked about at National Jewish, but no one ever really got data on, right? So they were just like, well, you know, we, you know, they, they had different names for these signs. Um, but, you know, they, when we see this thing, you know, this sort of uh, constellation of findings, it usually means, you know, this. And if you see this other constellation of signs, it means that. And we thought to ourselves, you know, someday, someday we should go ahead and publish this. But when we were at National Jewish, we never got around to it. Um, and so it, it took me going to University of Chicago to finally say, all right, fine, we're going to publish this. And so that's when, that's when we started getting going on the publications. But in terms of how the, the ideas came up, those signs, those three signs in particular, um, again, I had to double check with Chris on this because my memory is sort of fuzzy. Uh, the exuberant honeycombing sign was something that we came up with together. So he and I were sitting back to back and we noticed a lot of patients with rheumatoid arthritis uh, and different types of connective tissue disease with a lot of honeycombing, like the, like so much honeycombing where it's probably all there was in terms of fibrosis was honeycombing. It just looked like cysts on top of cysts on top of cysts. And oftentimes those honeycomb cysts were a little bigger than you normally see in UIP, IPF, right? And so we thought to ourselves, we said, you know, I, we think this is real. And then we started telling other people about it, but they said, oh, okay, that's interesting. But again, we had not proven it with data. Eventually we did prove it with data. So that's where that came from. 
Uh, the anterior upper lobe sign, that's something Chris came up with. He, he really deserves full credit for that one. He noticed that, I think, a long time ago. But again, uh, we weren't able to prove it at the time, but eventually we did. And then the straight edge sign, that's something that um, we want to call something else. But the the American Journal of Rankinology uh, insisted that we not call it that because I guess they don't like uh, food signs. We want to call it the pancake sign because it's like it's sort of like pancake down on the lower aspect of the thorax, the lower aspect yes. of the lungs, and that's what they call it. National Jewish, they, I believe they still call it pancake sign and National <laughs> Jewish, right? And you will see a lot of patients with like systemic sclerosis, they'll have just like fibrosis, which is just this little pancake at the bottom of the lungs on coronary formation. Uh, but they insisted that we call it something else, so we came up with a straight edge sign, which is like. Okay, it's one of my favorite signs, but I'm not completely happy with the name. Maybe one of these days we can change it back to the pancake sign. We'll see. That's quite quite tantalizing an alternative pancake sign. I really oh, like Oh, yeah. That. I love food signs. They're great. <laughs> You're actually involved in a couple of papers that came out relatively uh, near to each other in time looking at UIP in the setting of connective tissue disease. So there was the paper with um, – the anterior upper lobe sign, but then another paper that talked about the four corner sign. So can, yeah. you, can you talk about the relationship between those two signs? Chris also came up with the four corner sign. He also noticed that as well. And so the four corner sign is when you have fibrosis concentrated in bilateral lungs, in the anterior aspect of upper lobes, and then sort of the superior aspect of the lower lobe. So soup seg, lower lobes bilaterally. So you have this, these four corners of the lungs. He, he noticed that this was a specific pattern, he thought, in systemic sclerosis. And again, while we're at National Jewish, we weren't able to prove it. But then in that publication that we did together, we showed it. We showed that that is certainly associated with systemic sclerosis. Now, how do I use that? I, I For me, it's really about the anterior upper lobe involvement. So both of those involve the anterior aspect of the upper lobes, the anterior upper lobe sign and the four corner sign. And both of these, in my mind, point to a connective tissue disease. And so from a practical standpoint, that's how I do it. I just combine the two because I think they're probably the same sign or very similar. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Um, I've heard the term propeller sign banded yes. around in other yes. circles as well. Yep. Um, I like looking at it on the sagittals because then you get the top and the bottom right there. <laughs> yeah, it's this whole extra layer with these features that we're talking about now because when people are, are uh, coming into learning about the radiology of interstitial lung disease and they're learning about differentiating between those major categories and the diagnostic criteria for UIP, for HP, for NSIP. Once you sort of settle down that first step of the algorithm, this is that next step where you're then adding on these other sort of subtle contributors to possible um, underlying etiologies. Uh, what fascinates me as the next kind of step in where we want the literature to go is doing that same thing in UIP pattern in the setting of hypersensitivity pneumonitis because we know there's a there's a proportion of these patients who are classifiable as UIP on radiology and just fit a typical or probable pattern. But I'm wondering what other subtle features we are going to be able to prove in these patients to to come up with that equivalent kind of um, etiological clue. What what's your take on UIP and HP? I don't know. <laughs> that's that's the truth, right? What what do I think? I think that I think that right now the problem with HP is this, right? And I've, I've thought this for a long time, and I think some other people that I've talked to also think this. HP is so heterogeneous. Right. It's due to essentially an autoimmune process due to inhalation of something, right? Whether it's dust or organic material or whatever. And so the problem is that because you have different 
exposures which can elicit it and people have different sort of genetic susceptibilities to HP, you're going to have different phenotypes. And, the, and as you're alluding to, the phenotypes can go all the way from UIP to something that looks classic for what's described in the, the textbooks that HP looks like. And so I think that, I, so on, on one end, if you're, if there are confident findings of HP on imaging, I think you can be pretty sure that's HP, right? I think that's, that's, that's a done deal. I think that's been, um, been shown. In terms of UIP, like a UIP-like pattern in HP, there must be some signal there. There has to be. But the problem is there's so much noise. You know, there's so many different um, causes of HP. And then we all just lump them all together and try to analyze them, analyze them like that. I wonder if we can, as like a, a global community, parse out the HPs, right? Say, all right, well, this is due to farmer's lung, HP farmer's lung. And like, so now we have like, you know, 8,000 cases of that. And so this is due to hot tub lung, right? These are like, you know, 4,000 cases of that. And then actually analyze them like that. And then look at the UIP patterns within those specific subsets of HP. I bet you there's some signal there. And if maybe not perceptible to the human eye, maybe by radiomics or by some sort of AI algorithm, I bet you we could tease it out. But right now it's noise, noise, right? And so if you have too noisy of a data set, you know that even if there's signal in there, very often statistically, it can't figure it out, right? And, and you know, radiomics and AI and even the human mind, like we are, we're sort of trying to figure that out, right? Where if there's too much noise in a, a data set, it's hard for things to be parsed out. So I think that's probably the path forward, but we're nowhere close to that right now. The, the, the problem is this, right? And you know this, you know this just as well as I do. Um, when it comes to, to sort of dis, to discovering research, there is competition, right? And people don't like sharing, right? People don't like sharing their data with other people. Um, and so if you don't share your data with other people, and I, like what happens is that then other people don't want to share their data with other people. So it probably takes, it takes like one person, like one person who has a lot of data to just say, you know what, forget about it. I'm just going to share it with everyone, right? We're going to be a public, um, you probably have to get it past your, your medical center, right? Your legal team to, to actually release all that data, um, you know, because it is patient data, even if it is anonymized. But I think that's what it would take for someone to kind of be very selfless, kind of release it. And then people would sort of in turn say, all right, well, you know, this person released their data. Fine. We'll, we'll share our data as well. And then it just sort of like picks up steam momentum and that just becomes the norm, right? That would be a beautiful thing. I don't know if it'll ever happen because there's so much competition in academics. Yeah, there really is. I feel like it is a potential now in a way that it absolutely wasn't 10 years ago with more global interconnectivity and having availability on the cloud of, of different platforms and image sharing and, and the, the huge data sets that are being collected for the massive machine learning projects that require tens of thousands of, of studies. So I think we're, we're coming into the age where that kind of thing is more enabled than it ever was before. Oh yeah. I, I don't know with the um so the the age of academic disruption now with Sci-Hub and open access to journals and you know people are really starting to to question the um the model of the scientific journal and the kind of exorbitant fees that are that are charged to authors. So I don't know. It's all it's all a, a brave new world out there at the moment. I think you never know it what's is. what's going to come from from the shakeup. Yeah, no, it's yeah. I, yeah, I wonder what's going to happen. I do. I always, I, I think to myself, I, like ten years from now, I doubt like things will be the same as it is now. I think a lot of things are going to be disrupted in in medicine and certainly in radiology. Yeah, I can't can't wait to see what happens. 
In in my lecture, I'm I'm talking about the different morphological features of focal lung opacities that are predictive of benign and malignant etiologies. And I know that in our MDMs here, we do have clinicians who are coming to the discussion with the clinical risk calculators and um, an assessment of uh, likelihood of malignancy, knowing that the literature. Uh, shows that these calculators underperform. There was a um, paper out of Pennsylvania that in a data set of a mix of benign and malignant lung lesions, uh, the calculator was estimating a malignancy of rate of 33% when the true rate was almost 70%. So we know that there's a lot of problems with these. And I really do see that the role of the radiologist is as an ambassador in these MDMs for the clinical utility of these morphological features, with the, which the clinicians are not necessarily aware of the degree of reliability um, that some of these things have in interpretation. What's your experience uh, on the lung cancer side of things in these MDM discussions? So great question. First off, let me say I loved your lecture. I absolutely loved your lecture. Like, no, seriously, like it's clearly a master educator. In the U.S., at least my education, no one taught how to differentiate infection from tumor in a that in, in, in a broken down manner like that. It was just sort of like, oh, that looks bad. You know, it's all that's, that's like tumor. But they wouldn't explain why, right? Other than like speculation and it's huge, right? If it's huge, obviously like that's concerning for malignancy. And if it's speculated, because, you know, speculated is bad. Everyone knows that. Even like a medical student knows that. It's like, well, that's concerning. But all these other things, all the other, you know, like the the ratio of size, right? Sort of like the, you know, who's the boss in the lung is is uh, really compelling stuff. I'm getting all my residents to watch that lecture. So again, thank you for doing that. Thank you. Thank yeah, yeah, you. really, really wonderful. Um, so in a way, in the at least at the, in, in my center or the centers that I've worked, um, I it's, it's, it's good and bad. Um, it's good in the sense that um, I haven't had to really deal with the calculator issue. So many, most clinicians aren't coming to me with their their sort of calculations of the risk of malignancy. In the US, I think people err toward just assuming it's malignant until proven otherwise. And it's probably because we practice in a more litigious um, society than most other countries. It's I think a lot of people, unfortunately, a lot of people uh, practice in fear, right? In fear of missing something. Instead of like practicing, like trying to like embrace the joy of being right, they sort of like practice the fear of being wrong, which I, is it's a terrible thing. I, I definitely try not to do that, right? Tell my residents, you know, that's not what you went to medicine. You didn't go into medicine to, you know, try to practice, um, uh, you know, protect yourself medicine from, you know, medical legal risk. You did it to help people, right? And that's the approach. But unfortunately, that's the practice. Unfortunately, and fortunately, again, uh, in, from this standpoint, uh, I do practice in that sort of climate. And so what we do is we will actually be very aggressive in trying to get tissue in a lot of cases, uh, whether it's transbronchially, uh, whether it's uh, whether it's uh, uh, percutaneously, we try to get tissue. And so and if and we also will use PET CT a lot, which I think, you know, and, and you describe in your lecture, oftentimes is not that helpful. You've exposed the patient to like what is it, like 30 millisieverts of radiation, um, and, and you don't get the answer, right? And so, unfortunately, that's that's what happens a lot of times with PET-CT, right? You know, wait, waiting and watching is probably the best approach in a lot of these cases. And so, uh, I haven't had to, had to deal with that, but you know what? I kind of wish I did have to deal with that because that would tell me that the clinicians are thinking that from a more, I don't know, reasonable standpoint, instead of being scared of being sued of missing a lung cancer, they're actually just trying to treat the patient and do right by the patient. So you're lucky in, from that standpoint. What's, what's it like in Australia medical legally? 
everybody is very aware in radiology, and I would expect that that's a, a sort of global perception of the fact that our words are down on paper forever and whatever we say is right there in black and white and the picture that we looked at to make that call is right there in black and white forever and it's there's a, a different environment in so many other parts of medicine where uh, the, the surgeon came and felt the belly and um, nobody's to say that the belly was not soft. The surgeon said the belly was soft yesterday. So now the patient's not well, but the surgeon said the belly was soft. Nobody can do anything about that. Um, even uh, gastroscopists don't take photos all the way through when they show three representative images it's those are recorded but at the end of the day we don't know what they what was in between those those images that go on file the most recent data that i know about the medico legal environment in radiology is from the university of sydney which was published in 2015 which gives the figure for Australian radiologists as a 50% risk of being the defendant in a law case uh, by the age of 60. Hmm. Um, so I don't know if you if you have figures from your end, but the paper gave your figures, if you want to hear that. Yes. Um, for a radiologist in the United States, the figure quoted at that time was that 40% of US radiologists will be sued at a rate of approximately every five years of working life. So that works out to be about six times the rate of over here. But it, but I was surprised by the Australian figures and I was surprised by that um, 50% chance because we don't, um, we don't talk about it culturally in, in our decision-making process. It's not something that people are, are verbalizing overtly. I think there's a big danger with focusing on that fear the three reasons that radiologists get sued are misdiagnosis, which may be perceptual, you just didn't see it. Uh, it may be cognitive, you called it the wrong thing. And um, that's not what what the infection versus cancer lecture is about, because that's, that's talking about uh, refining the working diagnosis and then steering in an appropriate direction with an appropriate safety um, timeframe to then prove or disprove and then change tack when you need to. The second sort of category that radiologists get sued for is uh, um, inappropriate communication of results. So, you know, a fax went through and somebody left it in the machine all weekend, uh, whatever it is, that's, that's not what we're talking about here. But the third category that radiologists get sued for is that of vague reporting. So that's when the physician stands up in court and says, if the radiologist told me they were that worried about it, I would have done something about it. Um, there was a big landmark case in this that you might be aware of that was um, that ran through in the United States in 1997 where a radiologist performed a barium swallow and the report reads, there is irregularity in the cardia of the stomach, small hiatus hernia, stop end. Um, that report went out, nothing happened, patient had some bloating, some vague abdominal discomfort, and then 10 months later, a gastroenterologist does a scope and finds a gastric adenocarcinoma. And the radiologist was successfully sued, and that's 1997, that's 25 years ago, the patient got a payout of $900,000 US. Wow. That's vague reporting, that's when, when somebody sees something, but they're not using the words to really crystallize their communication in the degree of concern that they have about something. There's so many ways to report that barium swallow. It's uh, this may reflect, you know, transient um, contraction of the stomach or a fixed lesion. 
This mm. is very likely to reflect an underlying carcinoma, recommend gastroscopy. There's so many ways to, to actually give that message. You may not have 100% certainty in, in what you're looking at, and that's absolutely fine. But what you need to communicate and what, what I really try and teach is that you need to communicate a level of suspicion and a weighted differential diagnosis so that the clinician can use an appropriate workup algorithm and um, prove or disprove the possibilities in a clinically appropriate time frame. And, and that's what uh, the six weeks follow-up CT is about, that we know that it's safe to, to re-image a lesion. We know that the risk of pathological upstaging, if this turns out to be cancer, is really, really low in that time frame. And we're just working towards starting with something based on the evidence and then making that best next appropriate step, which weighs up patient safety and minimizes unnecessary invasive procedures. So vague reporting is, um, is what we're really trying to address. Mm, that's very interesting. Like something that this reminds me of talking about is also like knowing who your audience is or who ordered that study. Like I, I, I have, there are a ton of clinicians who order studies and PAs and NPs who order studies at University of Chicago, but the people who order HRCTs, I know them. I know most of them. And so those people, especially part of the interstitial lung disease group, I tell my residents when you, when we dictate, we can dictate things like just UIP. This is a UIP pattern. They'll know what to do with it, right? Because um, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna give more instruction because I know they're the experts of experts. They know better than I how to treat that patient. But if say some like an NP or PA who who's from family practice who I never have met before orders an HRCT and there is like let's say like an NSIP pattern, I am very very prescriptive. Maybe maybe even overbearing, right? Maybe maybe even the point of being overbearing in telling them what to do, right? I'll say this is an NSIP pattern, right, which is usually secondary to these conditions, right, and that they should refer the patient to Interstitial Lung Disease Clinic at University of Chicago. Um, I I don't put the phone number in there. I think that would be definitely overbearing, right? <laughs> but I do say you know they should be, be forwarded, right, because there is data to suggest that if this a patient with interstitial lung disease gets into that clinical pathway faster, they have better prognosis. And so um, I've, I've been something, I've been trying to get my residents to be more mindful of who's ordering these studies, but it does require them to kind of figure out who the ordering provider is, do a little Google search. But, you know, that 10 second Google search might augment some like patient survival and their the therapy that they're receiving. So to me, it makes sense. And I think it's worthwhile. Yeah, I think you're absolutely spot on being, being aware of the relative familiarity with the pathology of the radiologist versus the referrer is an important part of um, communicating the appropriate degree of information that the next step is, is going to happen right by the patient. And the literature really supports that, um, what we call GPs, your family physicians really appreciate that extra background and that extra guidance when we're coming from a position of expertise in a particular condition. You know, I, I had one more question. And so this, this mm. pertains to your talk, though it's not C, a CT question. Like I know your, your talk was mostly on CT. So in the U.S., the, we have some radiologists, some chest radiologists. Let's say, so we just got chest radiologists um, who uh, disagree with other chest radiologists about this. And so if someone has sort of like mass-like consolidation on chest radiograph, a lot of radiologists will just say, okay, well, it's a pneumonia. If the patient has fever and chills, that kind of thing, you know, and the patient gets, should patient get appropriate therapy and the patient just sent off. Other radiologists insist that that patient come back, say, in eight weeks after therapy to ensure that it's nearly completely resolved to exclude an underlying cancer. But I actually, we, no one really knows what the right answer is. There is some data to suggest that 
there's a, a small percentage that end up being cancer. And that's not surprising. We know that sometimes cancers, especially adenocarcinomas, can manifest as mass-like consolidation. But other people argue that it's such a small percentage that it's not a good use of resources. What, what, do, you, what do you think about that? I had two terrifying cases during my time as a fellow in Toronto that will stay with me forever and that inform my practice. And the first was an x-ray case, the second was a CT case. So uh, in the case of the x-ray, it was an absolutely perfectly reported. We were fed the information of sepsis and, and um sputum production and everything was absolutely perfect and a, a chest x-ray that looks absolutely beautiful for pneumonia and it was um, appropriately reported as uh, pneumonia is more likely uh, the possibility of malignancy remains and then there was a full stop the patient didn't get any kind of follow-up they were treated with antibiotics and they come back two years later with advanced malignancy mm. and I don't have a figure for how often that happens, but it's also absolutely no big deal for a patient to have a repeat x-ray in six to eight weeks. So I do always include a statement of, um, and the, the statement that I try to use is uh, repeat imaging to ensure resolution. And then you're, you're giving the reason. I, it's one thing to give a recommendation. It's a it's a lot more valuable, I find, often to make sure that the recommendation has a reason behind it so then the clinician knows exactly what you're thinking and exactly why and, again, understands the importance of it, which can be tied back into that whole medical legal discussion that, oh, well, I didn't realize why it was important, so it didn't seem that relevant even though you said to do it. So um, understanding that we want to document that it's gone. They may say, oh, well, the patient got so much better that I gave them antibiotics and there must be nothing to worry about. So I do do that. I do, I do strictly follow up unless the patient is below, say, 35. And I use the 35 figure just because the, the um, Fleischner nodule follow-up kicks in at 35. So that seems to be the, the sort of benchmark where yep. um, internationally we accept that the risk of malignancy is less. You're going to get people who sadly develop lung cancer below that age, but it's a useful, um, it's a useful sort of guide for age. Uh, the other case that will stay with me forever is that of uh, a um, mixed density lesion. So it had ground glass component, had a bit of um, consolidative component, was down in the costophrenic angle, and it really looked for all the world like inflammation. Uh, and they got a follow-up CT and it was getting better. And that was great. We said, this is uh, post-inflammatory change. Everything's fine. It's improving. And the patient came back four years later with advanced malignancy mm. because there is going to be this really small proportion of patients with malignancy who have some kind of um, localized immune-driven response and are able to partially regress a lesion that is still viable and still ends up taking over and taking off. And uh, the statement that I use in uh, CT reports is uh, document uh, complete resolution. So even if it's gotten better uh, in six weeks or three months or whenever it is that the next time point happens, I really want to see that there's nothing other than a little post-inflammatory band to be very, very comfortable. So I'm really at that end of the spectrum yep. in, in strictly, strictly recommending follow-up. Yeah, I err toward that spectrum as well. Um, I, I used to not. I used to not. But then I've saw I've seen some hor horrible cases of of cancers that are missed. That just I mean, it probably there was probably superimposed pneumonia on top of a cancer. That's probably the case. Mm -hmm. And we didn't follow it up, and the patient had a bad outcome. And so yeah, and I definitely err toward that. I love your idea of giving a reason. Like you're you're 
I don't know if you're a fan of behavioral economics, right? Like University of Chicago, like our economics part, very, you know, very um, well known for their behavioral economics research. And so I started getting into it. And it reminds me of this paper, this, this really interesting paper that um, I, I tell, tell my residents about, about why you're, you should give people reasons, why, you know, of why you're doing something. Um, there were people on a line and uh, they did this sociology research project where you asked the person in front of you if you could cut them in line, right? And so uh, they did it I, you know, X, X many times. And so if you don't give a reason, people will let you cut in line like 60% of the time with no reason, mm-hmm. right? So it's not great, but it's, you know, it's, it's something. If you give a reason, right, if you give a good reason, like, oh, my kid's sick, I really need to get going, right? They will, they will allow you to cut in line over 90% of the time. But believe, but this is actually the most interesting thing. If you tell them the reason is that you need to make copies, which and everyone in this line is waiting to make copies, right? So it's an inane reason. It's a silly reason. If you tell that, the yield still ninety five percent, right? So just by giving a reason, right? There's we are wired to sort of like do as we're told or or do as suggested, right? So the reason is a very powerful thing. So I in my radiology reports, yeah, I think having a reason, whether it's a good reason or like just sort of like maybe like an iffy reason, I think it's mm. quite powerful. I love that. I love that. I think that's all we have time for today, Jonathan. It's been great chatting with you. So thanks again. Always a pleasure. Thank you to Miranda and Jonathan there for another excellent discussion. I reckon they both went to the Frank Gaylard School of, of Podcasting, Frank. So, you know, stretched analogies, behavioral economics, <laughs> talk of meat even. And I, I made up that hot dog sign, by <sighs> the way, Gaylard. So no points for you this week. But it did sound quite good, that ground I'll glass let you, capacity. I'll let you take advantage of my meat fetish. That's right. That must be a form of bias, right? Like carnival bias or something where you... <laughs> You automatically think anything that has to do with meat must be true. (laughs) (laughs) The default position. Definitely availability bias on my part, though, because I was like, oh, I need to make up a sign. Jonathan mentioned hot dogs. Okay, hot dog sign it is. (laughs) (laughs) Did you read about the latest meat-related news from Singapore? No. I mean, I usually follow all the meat news out of Singapore quite closely, but I must have missed (laughs) this one. (laughs) So this was from Forbes magazine, Mm -hmm. uh, that meatable which is one of the companies that's making true vat-grown meat, so muscle fibers. Mm-hmm. And it's actually worth going to see the meatable.com website because, one, they've used all the visual language that butchers usually use, the same sort of font and imagery. And then when you go to the very bottom, they've got all the people who are part of the Meatable exec team. Mm-hmm. And they must have had a photo shoot where the, where the photographer said, look, off to the distance to a brighter future. (laughs) And they all are looking off camera in a kind of, I can see where we're heading kind of way. Anyway, Meetable has partnered with a Singapore-based company, Esco Asta, because Singapore wants to make 30% of its own meat by 2030 as part of its Singapore 30 by 30 strategy, which is a commitment Mm. to producing 30% of all its food domestically by 2030. There's not a lot of arable land in no, Singapore, so it kind not. of makes sense that you'd have to go down the lab-grown pathway. It's often the case, isn't it, that it's the places with the most incentive that are going uh, to develop this new technology. Like Australia's unlikely to have a big lab-grown meat industry yeah. pop up overnight because we've got so much you know, farming land and so much beef being produced. But Singapore's, yeah, that's the place for it. 
it's constraints that drive mm. innovation. It is. Uh, like the Western Europe is where all the technology came because everyone was freezing and starving, whereas <laughs> in Pacific Islands where you can just pluck fruits off passing yeah, yeah. trees, it's like, eh, hey, I'm okay. Yeah. Okay, but with a cocktail, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Pina colada. <laughs> So moving away from meat for a moment, or hopefully indefinitely, but before <laughs> before I forget, both Miranda and Jonathan will be featuring at Radiopedia 2024 in July. So they'll be back with new lectures and uh, no doubt another interesting panel discussion for us to listen to. And Miranda's also taking part in the Cut and Polish Reporting Mini Workshop mm-hmm. with Michael Hartung and guests on day five. So that's exciting. Uh, now, Frank, anything from this panel discussion that uh, caught your eye today or caught your ear, I should say? Well, I mean, there are a lot of signs in there. And and I think I've mentioned before on the podcast, and certainly to you, that I I find these named signs super cringy when used in reports. Mm. I know they're useful to get your head around an appearance, but when you see them in a report, it it's just Ugh, it's so naff. And it ties in with that discussion that Jonathan and Miranda had about vague reporting. Because if you're including named signs in your report, you're only reporting for fellow radiologists, really. And that is not the whole audience of your report. It's going to be read by physicians and general practitioners and even patients. And if you imagine being a patient who in the setting of lung disease, say that you're barely able to breathe, you've been told that your life expectancy is cut short, you're on all these drugs and it's painful and horrible, and then you read your latest HRCT and there's talks of pancakes and Mm. hot dogs, it's just poor form. So I never use them. I think that's why things like the anterior upper lobe sign and the straight edge sign are quite useful because it's talking about the the appearance and, yeah, and, and where to look. So those ones I think can be useful. But, yeah, the ones like, you know, for example, hot dog or, or pancake, yeah. definitely I'd be avoiding putting those in my reports. But, no, I tend not to to mention them at all. i tell you what I, I really enjoyed was when Miranda and Jonathan got onto talking about reporting and, as you said, you know, avoiding the, the vague terminology in your reports. And I love that point about giving reasons for your recommendations mm. and then Jonathan's, you know, skipping the cue story. That yeah, I remember really- reading that. It's in one of those behavioural economics kind of famous books. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's true. Like any reason will do. Our monkey brains aren't that cunning. And uh, you give a reason, it's like, oh, that must be good. Yeah, yeah. You take a moment to process it and you've already given the person permission and then <laughs> you right. and then you think back and you go, hang on, I'm lining up for the copier as well. <laughs> I need to get ahead of you because I would like to be ahead in the queue. It's like, yeah, fair sure. enough. Sure. Go, go for it, mate. <laughs> um, I've also written down here uh, the line about litigation, changing the reporting mm. mentality of radiologists from the joy of being correct to the fear of being wrong. I've Never thought about it that way, but that's so apt. That's exactly what's happened, I reckon. I think the fear of being wrong is baked into our judicial system mm. right? because you get penalised for being wrong, even if you're only wrong very infrequently, and you don't get penalised for being usually vague or cautious or uh, hedging your bets. But one of the things that really stood out to me listening to this talk is how much the terminology around particularly interstitial lung disease has changed since 
I last did any reading, which was probably mm. 15 years ago. And it made me notice that, and, and I think everyone sort of goes through this, that when you learn your craft, in our case, radiology or medicine, when you're a medical student, you have this sense that there used to be a time in the past where no one knew anything. Then there was this rapid period of discovery of knowledge. And then you kind of got to understanding most things and that now we're at this sort of plateau phase that we're learning the truth. There might be mm. some details that need to be changed, but basically what we're learning is, is, you know, we've sorted this out. And then you just wait a decade and you realize, no, no, we're still on this steep edge of the curve because everything's changed. I don't understand half of the diseases that they're talking about and certainly all the terminology has gone. I've noticed exactly the same thing, to be honest. And it's not just in radiology. Recently, um, you know, CRISPR technology. Like if you go back mm. to when I was at medical school, you thought, oh, my God, we know everything about DNA, how to <laughs> splice it up. We knew absolutely nothing at that point. Now we can, you know, cut genes in and out. It's, it's, it's amazing how rapidly things progress. But, yeah, that terminology, often I'll, I'll hear something or see something at work and I'll think, oh, I've never heard of that. And you look it up and, you know, it was five, six years ago that mm. it came about, but it takes a while for it to kind of filter through. And that's why obviously the, the website that updates is mm. essential, right? You look at Radiopedia 10 years ago when you thought, yeah, oh, absolutely. it's got everything. It's got everything. It's fine. We don't need any more work on this. And you just realize that everything evolves. It needs to stay up to date. And if anything, the rate of change is, is increasing. Mm. It's amazing. I'll tell you the other thing that I've noticed, mm. and that is that uh, when the main segment is quite long, like this mm -hmm. week, and I tell you, oh, we don't need much discussion in the <laughs> outro, you seem to do the opposite. You seem to bring a list of 50 things to chat about, Gaylord. Well, I mean, the longer the segment, the more likely there are to be interesting things, right? So I've got two <laughs> okay. more. There's two right. more I want to talk about. Firstly, if we ever have merch, I want yeah. the official Radiopedia hoodie to have the quote, newborn babies are seldom cute. <laughs> <laughs> Or, or here's a thought. We could focus on things that people might actually want to buy instead. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Newborn babies are seldom cute is going to be a sure winner, especially yeah. if it comes from Jonathan, who comes across as being so earnest and, <laughs> and nice. <laughs> anyway, the second one, um, perhaps more important, is the question of clinical calculators being brought by physicians to meetings. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how that relates to AI. I mean, AI are a form of, they're not explicit calculators, but they sort of have ideas about whether pathology is present and can give percentages often, depending on the uh, app that you're looking at. But they don't often capture everything. So there will be times that you disagree with the calculator or disagree with the AI. And I wonder what the medical legal implications of disagreeing with an AI are going to be. Yeah, sure. Now, we've got plenty of time to talk about the <laughs> medico-legal implications of AI. Just ignore me trying to wrap up the episode. <laughs> no, I mean, we use, um, at my hospital, we do use an automatic segmented morphometry brain volume tool mm -hmm. that divides the brain up into regions and then colour codes them in terms of number of standard deviations away from age and gender normal values. And often I agree with them. And sometimes they're just clearly wrong because the segmentation hasn't worked. Mm. But not infrequently, it says that it's like three standard deviations away from normal, but I would have called it normal. Mm. And so there, those maps are 
on packs, clinicians are seeing it, it's bright red. They can interpret that map much more easily than they can interpret the images themselves. So I can't not mention it. But then what do you say? Do you say there is volume loss or do mm. you say morphometry thinks there's volume loss? But I don't. I, I find that quite challenging to reconcile the two. When it matches my subjective assessment, mm. that's great. So I'll yeah. say, you know, there's disproportionate frontal lobe atrophy confirmed on the brain morphometry data. But if I think it's wrong, I'll still point out what the morphometry is showing. So I'll say brain morphometry data has been provided. Uh, yeah. The reduced frontal gray matter volume measurement is thought to be incorrect or spurious or whatever. Um, yeah. So I will acknowledge that I think that this map that they've provided is incorrect. The other thing I love to do with it is to subjectively have a look through the brain myself and then work out, you know, try and guess what colours are going to be when I scroll through. <laughs> so I'm yes. going through that sagittal image and, you know, I'm going, all right, this is all going to be green except for, and you've predicted. Yeah. I think that's a really helpful process because that means you focus in on what you're expecting and therefore notice when, it's, when there's a disagreement and you're more likely to not just go along with it. It's also very exciting. It's kind of like, you know, watching that video icon move and get the corner of the screen. (laughs) (laughs) It's just a fun game in the reporting room. Anyway, I think it's time to wrap this one up, Gaylord. I I tried to wrap it up a little bit earlier, but but I'll be successful this time. How can people get in contact with us? Well, we're at Radiopedia on Twitter and Instagram, as well as at Frank Gaylord and at Dr. Andrew Dixon. And you can, of course, email us at podcast at radiopedia.org with any ideas and feedback. Mm, yes, T-shirt merchandise ideas, uh, the joy of being correct, perhaps. <laughs> might. That actually might be popular for married couples, actually, because the joy of being correct for my wife and then the fear of being wrong for me, that pretty much is the basis of our relationship. <laughs> ah, his and hers version. We just doubled our sales. <laughs> And if you want to help support Radiopedia, then you can become a paid supporter. And this month is definitely the month to do it. Not only do you get all the normal perks that supporters do, but new supporters also go into the running to win one of four free passes to Radiopedia 2024 virtual conference. And remember that supporters see less or if you're gold or radium, zero ads across the entire site, which makes Radiopedia so much nicer experience. I wasn't going to tell this story, but I had a colleague recently who who called me up out of the blue and she was like, Andrew, I was just teaching a tutorial to my registrars and I was using Radiopedia and as I moved around the website, these ads for female nightwear were following me around <laughs> <laughs> and the trainees thought it was very, very funny. And yes, I have been searching for those things, but no, I didn't want the trainees to know. (laughs) (laughs) That's an extra reason to become a supporter so that your (laughs) dodgy internet search does not get exposed by ad tracking. (laughs) Absolutely. And, And what else can people do to help us out, Frank? You can also leave us a five star review in the podcast app of your choosing. Excellent. I'll read the final line here. It says, and we'll catch you all again sometime soon. And next episode, Gaylord, sorry to cut mm. in to the little outro here, but next episode is a hostful Christmas-themed Ooh, episode. goatful. <laughs> We're going to have to get some goat Christmas music. <laughs> That's right. And we'll catch you all again sometime soon in the reading room. 
Stay rad. Stay rad, everyone. It's not like there's any chance of me having some Christmas goats, is there? No, not at all. I imagine Christmas at the Gaylord House, there's nothing goes wrong. No gripes at all. None. (laughs) Well, we'll hear about it next episode. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.